The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. When the Father made Christ to be sin for us, it was my sin that he was dealing with. When the Father turned his face away from the Lord Jesus Christ, he turned away his face from me, so that his hatred for my sin was exhibited to all the universe. When the Father bruised the Son and put him to grief, he counted me as being bruised and put to grief. Though it was not I, but Christ, yet God saw me in it. The suffering was all his, but the results were all mine, and are all mine forever. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled The Same Plant. In the redwood forest of California, two trees may begin growing a few feet apart from each other. When they grow larger and touch each other, the bark begins to form around both trees, and they will actually begin growing into one redwood tree. From his eternal vantage point, God looked down through time and saw all of his people as being one plant with Jesus Christ. Have you joined the rest of the saints throughout history in being one plant with Christ? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Same Plant. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness, and that thou hast given us ready access to come with holy boldness into thy presence. Bless thou thy truth to us in this hour, and use it to every listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text is in the sixth chapter of Romans and the fifth verse. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. I was a very small child when I first became aware of growing things. Plants and flowers were around me in my childhood days. We had a large vegetable garden with many berry plants, fruit trees of many varieties, and a profusion of flowers, which the abundant climate of the central California coast where I was born and brought up flung at us with glory and beauty. I can remember going into the greenhouse where my mother potted certain plants and working with her as a child of five or six could work. I stacked up the pots, ran my fingers through the soft loam, and helped her work the leaf mold into the soil for her special flowers. Then I became acquainted with seeds and was given some to plant in a special corner of my own. 
I can remember going to them after a few days and digging them up to note how they had broken apart with the soft tendrils reaching for the air and the root structure sending tiny filaments into the soil. It is almost normal that the idea of burying seeds should come to the mind of anyone who read the verse in Romans which says in the King James Version, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. But unfortunately, the idea that is now associated with the verb to plant is far afield from the idea that is to be found in the original Greek of this passage. Some futoi is an old verbal adjective which comes from an older Greek verb which means to grow together, not to plant. The most accurate rendering of this text that I have ever found in a modern language is that of Sagon, the Swiss theologian, in his French translation of the scriptures. And translating from the French, we read, For if we have become the same plant in the likeness of his death, we shall also be the same plant in the likeness of his resurrection. And just as we are not to think of burying a seed in the ground in seeking for the meaning of this passage, we must not think of the grafting of one plant into another. I can remember watching the graft of a branch of a red apple into a tree that was producing white apples, and after a number of months, seeing red and white apples growing on the same tree. The picture of such a graft will come back in a later connection in Romans with great force and significance. But here in the sixth chapter, God is giving us something much stronger and clearer. There are two great ideas in our text, both of them expressing a work which the Lord God has done in our behalf in the work of Jesus Christ. First, God says that we have become united with him, the Lord Jesus, in the Savior's death. Secondly, he tells us that in like manner also we are united with the Lord Jesus in his resurrection. Out of this double expression of truth emerges a great statement of our position in the eyes of God, our position so far as sin is concerned, and of our position in the eyes of God so far as life is concerned. God looks upon us, and by us I mean those who believe in Jesus Christ, God looks upon us as having become Christ in both his death and in his resurrection. Note that I do not say that God looks upon us as having become with Christ or like Christ, but that God looks upon us as having become Christ. Our text says that we have become the same plant with him. On the coast of California, there are great forests of the redwoods, Sequoia sempervirens, and the manner of their growth is unlike that of any other tree that I've ever heard of. Two trees of this species may grow up year after year a few feet from each other. Finally, sometimes after 50 or 100 years, as the tree rings prove, these trees touch and the bark begins to overlap and fill out so that the two trees ultimately become one. There have been cases where a dozen trees springing up from the outer roots of a tree that has fallen have formed a perfect circle and after a century or two have grown together so that one may walk between two trees into the empty heart of what will become a great tree, which will fill up as the years go by and will ultimately give the outward appearance of a single giant tree. Near Santa Cruz on the coast, there are two trees, one which grows at an angle to the other, 
and the contact between them has been made a hundred feet in the air. And from that point upwards, they are one tree, a single top, growing from two totally different trunks over 30 feet apart. Now, it's something like that, which is the thought which is hidden in our text. We grew out of the root of Adam, and we were by nature the children of wrath, children of disobedience. But God had determined that he would not be alone in the eternal heavens, and he had planned to save a great number of us according to his eternal purpose, that we might be to the praise of his glory. In the fullness of time, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to perform the work of judgment upon sin and to die upon the cross of Calvary. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But the outstanding truth of our text is that God, looking down into time from his eternal vantage point, saw us in Christ, grown into him, one plant with him. We had been of the root of Adam, and Christ, in becoming sin for us, grew into us, so that our death became his death, and his death became the death of our death. He died only because we had been spiritually dead in order that we might be brought to spiritual life. There was no other way. When we comprehend this truth, we can see that the effect that it has upon our position is very great. You can say for yourself, as I have already said for myself, I was seen by God to be in the death of Christ. As far as God is concerned, when Jesus Christ died, I died and his death paid for all my sinful nature forever. When we comprehend this, we can well understand that our sin has been dealt with and completely dealt with forever. It would be impossible for God himself to look upon one of those whom he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world in any other way than judicially dead to sin forever. For me to be lost it would be necessary for Christ to undie. I was in Christ in his death, and everything that God the Father did to God the Son, he also did to me. We were one plant in God's sight. Now what was true for his death is also true for his resurrection. The tree of his life grew into the tree of my death, and we were one together in it. Now the tree of his resurrection grows out of that trunk of the cross, and lo, I am growing out of it with him. All of my life springs from that death and that resurrection. And in the sight of God, I have no other life than the life of Christ. Now a question is immediately raised in every believing heart, for we know that we have a warfare within us. We know that there is a violent struggle between the fallen nature of Adam and the new life that is ours in Christ. Perhaps every Christian goes through the first part of this experience, and only some go through it all. There is a great deal of difference between true Christian experience and the experience of many Christians. But the fact of deliverance is clearly set forth here, even though many believers have not come to the experience of deliverance. The moment that we contemplate the thought of complete deliverance from sin, all of the evil tendencies of our Adamic natures 
rise to block our way to that deliverance. The presence of the sinful nature of which we are so keenly aware makes the biblical truth seem very improbable to us. Our minds can grasp the fact that the penalty of sin has been borne by Christ and that judicially we have been declared righteous. But the natural evil within us makes it difficult for us to grasp the fact that the power of sin has also been ended for us if we are willing to step into that power by simple faith. I know from my own experience and from conversation with thousands of young Christians over the years that practically every believer who really knows the Lord with any depth of perception comes to that knowledge over the same road. There is head belief that one is a sinner and that Christ is the Savior. Then there comes the moment when there is the positive assurance of the present possession of eternal life. With many Christians, this entering into the blessed assurance of salvation is so great a moment that it is looked upon as the time of regeneration. I believe now that I had been saved for many years before I knew it. And I know that I thought and even testified for several years that the date of my salvation was much later than I now know it to be. But after the certain knowledge of the presence of eternal life, of having been made a partaker of the divine nature, there comes the terrible awareness that sin is still present within the heart. We believe and we may think naively that everything is going to go very well with us now because we have accepted Christ. And then suddenly we're aware of sin within us. The reaction to this knowledge of the existence, yes, this vigorous and strenuous existence of the Adamic nature can be very terrible. Frequently, young Christians are appalled at what they discover in themselves shortly after they have received the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They, many of them, wonder if they have been truly saved. Some are in despair. Some are tempted to fall back into sin and waste months or even years of their lives by failing to comprehend the true position of the believer and the true source of deliverance from the power of sin. I know that in my own early Christian experience, after I had come to the certain assurance of my present possession of life eternal, because I had believed in the Lord Jesus as my Savior, I became aware of the force of the old nature, and I wondered if I were really saved. I threw myself on my knees by my bed and cried unto the Lord, saying that if I had not really understood aright, and if I had not been really saved, I would now come fully to Christ and receive him as Savior and Lord. The joy of his presence came back, and once more it was assailed by the rising of the old nature. Again I threw myself before the Lord on Calvary, and I pled to God the nature of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, the enemy came to realize that every time I was tempted to doubt my salvation, I cast myself utterly upon the Lord Jesus afresh. Now that is the only hope of the believer in Christ. It is the moment by moment clear recognition of the principles which underlie the gospel story and the work of God the Father and that of Christ the Son and that of the Holy Spirit in our behalf. There are some Christians who have devised the idea that it's necessary to pass through what they call a second work of grace 
in order to have some experience where they get rid of all sin forever. There are two schools of thought among such people, and I'm sure that both of them are wrong when judged by the word of God. The first group teaches that it's necessary for the believer to come back to God for a second experience in which he shall take by faith the experience of salvation from the effects of sin, which results, according to them, in the eradication, the wiping out of the old nature. We answer them simply by the flat statement of the Holy Spirit, who tells us in 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in it. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The tragic thing about such a doctrine is that its holders are forced, once they have come to believe that they're free from sin, to believe that what they do is not sin. Thus they are pledged to a low view of the holiness of God and a low view of the sinfulness of sin. The second group approaches the problem differently. They have known the warfare with sin. And when there comes a time in which they have flung themselves back upon the grace and the power of Christ, they have such an overflowing of joy, peace, and power that they imagine that it's a second blessing which has introduced a permanent new relationship and sinlessness. In looking back at the experience of joy, they lose the thousand similar experiences which are truly for us in Christ. For he will never desire one of his children to have an experience rather than himself. We are not to look for it in religion. We are to look to him. Some of these people even claim that the old Adamic nature is present. Oh, yes, they say it's there, but that it's practically dead and that therefore they're troubled with it no more. This, we discover from the word of God, is a more serious error than the previous one. For in the case of those who believe that sin has been utterly removed, they deceive only themselves. Whenever I find a man that says, oh, thank God I don't sin anymore, I say, I'd like to ask his wife. He deceives only himself. But in the case of those who believe that the old Adamic nature is not removed, but that it remains present, completely nullified, so that its vigor and malignancy no longer exist, the situation is much worse. These, God says, make him a liar. We read in 1 John 1.10, if we say that we do no sin, we make him a liar. For he has told us in no unmistakable terms that the old Adamic nature is nothing but sin and that it cannot be cured, trained, polished, cleansed, or dealt with in any way other than that which God has announced. The old nature can only be crucified with Christ. Now, how does this work out practically? Let's get out of theology and down into the practical experience of the average everyday believer in Christ. For those who walk in truth must walk the way of holiness. We pass through the new birth. We come on to the place where we know the full assurance of the possession of life eternal. And we can sing honestly, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We then become terribly aware of the continued existence of the old Adamic nature within us. We may fight and or we are defeated. We may weep and mourn and do anything else that the human being is capable of doing. But when we would do good, Paul says, sin is present with us. It is then that we come to the triumph which is set forth in our present text. 
We see by the declaration of God that he made us judicially to be of the same plant and growth as Christ. That is our position in eternity. We must study how we are to have that position in our earthly walk in time today. I do not think that Christians spend enough study on considering the difference between time and eternity. We must realize that eternity is not something which is to follow time beginning in the future, but that eternity is something that is today above and outside of time. As far as eternity is concerned, God looks at us as being already there. We have been united with Christ. Our sins have been removed from us and placed on him in his death. We have been seen by God as being of the same plant and fabric as the Savior Son of God. Our position is secure forevermore. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We are in Christ and have been made complete in him. Now in time, as we live here on this earth, things are quite different. The old Adamic nature is within our flesh. Our bodies are decaying, dying things because we have the corruption, the spiritual corruption of the fallen nature as a part of the warp and woof of the fabric of our lives. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Are we to live in a continual warfare? Are we to be like the girl who said that she sometimes lived on the mountaintop and sometimes in the valley and had become rather well acquainted with all of the levels in between? Surely there is something better for us in Christ. Thank God there is. There comes that day when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, not only as our Savior, but as our Lord, and recognize what we are in him in eternity. We realize that our eternal position and union with Christ is already a fact in heaven. God has put it down thus on his books. We reach up by faith and lay hold upon that life and we're able to bring it down into time. In fact, it is as though we are carried into eternity and are able to see ourselves from the vantage point of the throne of God, a part of the same plant as our Savior. As long as the sense of this union is maintained in our life in time, we shall be living the life of triumph in Christ. As soon as we look away from the cross, especially if we look at ourselves, the old nature reasserts itself and the dullness and apathy of ordinary living envelops us. We may have gone to sleep at night praising and rejoicing in him. It is possible to awaken in the morning and to allow the thoughts of the flesh to carry us off into worldly and carnal distractions and to lose the flow of victory until we're suddenly brought up sharply by some defeat or by the hunger for holiness which must ever develop as a part of our growth in Christ. At that time we look to the Lord again and recognize that in heaven our eternal life and position of union with Christ is secure. We claim it for our present joyful possession and immediately we are back again in the warmth of triumphant praise and power. That in and out life may have been your condition for years and sometimes there are Christians who live in the out position for long and weary periods of time. But let us proclaim the present possibility of recognizing our oneness with Christ. We are of the same plant in his death 
and we may be of the same plant in his resurrection. When we have really known this oneness, it becomes unbearable to step out of it. And we discover that as the Christian life goes on, we are growing into longer and longer periods of that awareness of our oneness with him. And thank God, at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall put off time forever and shall know nothing but eternity with its continuing union and oneness with him, growing out of his cross and his resurrection life. And our God and Father, we pray thee that thou wilt bless each truth, this truth today to each listening heart. If there should be those who have not been born again, give them restlessness, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. But upon all thy believing own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide and a new sense of our union with Christ forever. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now till our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. God does not see us as merely being like Christ or with Christ. He looks at us as having become the same plant with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Same Plant. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Same Plant or simply request message number R6-21. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled This Man and This Woman. The value of marriage and the family is rapidly declining in our culture. The resulting epidemic of divorce and broken families has infested our society and even the church. This free booklet underscores the sanctity of marriage and its vital role in the church and in society. You will understand the true meaning and significance of Christian marriage and find biblical answers to questions about mixed marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Ask for your free copy of This Man and This Woman when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.